Section 20 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 7, Great Women, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. George Eliot, Part 1. A.D. 1819-1880. Woman as Novelist. Since the dawn of modern civilization, every age has been marked by some new development of genius or energy. In the 12th and 13th centuries, we notice Gothic architecture, the rise of universities, the scholastic philosophy, and a general interest in metaphysical inquiries. The 14th century witnessed chivalric heroism, courts of love, tournaments, and amorous poetry. In the 15th century, we see the revival of classical literature and Grecian art. The 16th century was a period of reform, theological discussions, and warfare with Romanism. In the 17th century came contests for civil and religious liberty, and discussions on the theological questions which had agitated the fathers of the Church. The 18th century was marked by the speculations of philosophers and political economists, ending in revolution. The 19th century has been distinguished for scientific discoveries and inventions directed to practical and utilitarian ends, and a wonderful development in the literature of fiction. It is the age of novelists, as the 15th century was the age of painters. Everybody now reads novels, bishops, statesmen, judges, scholars, as well as young men and women. The shelves of libraries groan with the weight of novels of every description, novels sensational, novels sentimental, novels historical, novels philosophical, novels social, and novels which discuss every subject under the sun. Novelists aim to be teachers in ethics, philosophy, politics, religion, and art, and they are rapidly supplanting lecturers and clergymen as the guides of men, accepting no rivals but editors and reviewers. This extraordinary literary movement was started by Sir Walter Scott, who made a revolution in novel writing, introducing a new style, freeing romances from bad taste, vulgarity, insipidity, and false sentiment. He painted life and nature without exaggerations, avoided interminable scenes of love-making, and gave a picture of society in present and past times so fresh, so vivid, so natural, so charming, and so true, and all with such inimitable humor, that he still reigns without a peer in his peculiar domain. He is as rich in humor as Fielding without his coarseness, as inventive as Swift without his bitterness, as moral as Richardson without his tediousness. He did not aim to teach ethics or political economy directly, although he did not disguise his opinions. His chief end was to please and instruct at the same time, stimulating the mind through the imagination rather than the reason, so healthful that fastidious parents made an exception of his novels among all others that had ever been written, and encouraged the young to read them. Sir Walter Scott took off the ban which religious people had imposed on novel reading. Then came Dickens, amazingly popular, with his grotesque descriptions of life, his exaggerations, his impossible characters and improbable incidents, yet so genial in sympathies, so rich in humor, so indignant at wrongs, so broad in his humanity, that everybody loved to read him, although his learning was small and his culture superficial. Greatly superior to him as an artist and a thinker was Thackeray, whose fame has been steadily increasing the greatest master of satire in English literature, and one of the truest painters of social life that any age has produced, not so much admired by women as by men, accurate in his delineation of character, though sometimes bitter and fierce. Felicitous in plot, teaching lessons in morality, unfailing shams and hypocrisy, contemptuous of all fools and quacks, yet sad in his reflections on human life. 
in the brilliant constellation of which dickens and thackeray were the greater lights was bulwer lytton versatile subjective and genius sentimental and yet not sensational reflective yet not always sound in morals learned in general literature but a charlatan in scientific knowledge worldly in his spirit but not a pagan an inquisitive student seeking to penetrate the mysteries of nature as well as to paint characters and events in other times and leaving a higher moral impression when he was old than when he was young among the lesser lights yet real stars that have blazed in this generation are reed kingsley black james trollope cooper howells wallace and a multitude of others in france and germany as well as england and america to say nothing of the thousands who have aspired and failed as artists yet who have succeeded in securing readers and in making money and what shall i say of the host of female novelists which this age has produced women who have inundated the land with productions both good and bad mostly feeble penetrating the cottages of the poor rather than the palaces of the rich and making the fortunes of magazines and news vendors from maine to california but there are three women novelists writing in english standing out in this group of mediocrity who have earned a just and wide fame charlotte bronte harriet beecher stowe and marion evans who goes by the name of george eliot it is the last of these remarkable women whom it is my object to discuss and who burst upon the literary world as a star whose light has been constantly increasing since she first appeared she takes rank with dickens thackeray and bulwer and some place her higher even than sir walter scott her fame is prodigious and it is a glory to her sex indeed she is an intellectual phenomenon no woman ever received such universal fame as a genius except perhaps madame de stal or as an artist if we except madame dudevant who also bore a nom de plume george's sand she did not become immediately popular but the critics from the first perceived her remarkable gifts and predicted her ultimate success for vivid description of natural scenery and rural english life minute analysis of character and psychological insight she has never been surpassed by men for while learning and profundity she has never been equaled by women a deep serious sad writer without vanity or egotism or pretension a great but not always sound teacher who by common consent and prediction will live and rank among the classical authors in english literature marion evan was born in warwickshire about twenty miles from stratford-on-avon the county of shakespeare one of the most fertile and beautiful in england whose parks and lawns and hedges and picturesque cottages with their gardens and flowers and thatched roofs present to the eye a perpetual charm her father of welsh descent was originally a carpenter but became by his sturdy honest ability and abiding sense of duty land agent to sir roger newdigate of arbury hall mr evans's sterling character probably furnished the model for adam bede and caleb garth sprung from humble ranks but from conscious and religious parents who appreciated the advantage of education miss evans was allowed to make the best of her circumstances we have few details of her early life on which we can accurately rely she was not an egotist and did not leave an autobiography like trollope or reminiscences like carlyle but she has probably portrayed herself in her early aspirations as madame de stal did in the characters she has created the less we know about the personalities of very distinguished geniuses the better it is for their fame shakespeare might not seem so great to us if we knew his peculiarities and infirmities as we know those of voltaire rousseau and carlyle 
only such a downright honest and good man as dr johnson can stand the severe scrutiny of after times and destructive criticism it would appear that miss evans was sent to a school in newnaton before she was ten and afterwards to a school in coventry kept by two excellent methodist ladies the misses franklin whose lives and teachings enabled her to delineate dinah morris as a schoolgirl, we are told that she had the manners and appearance of a woman her hair was pale brown worn in ringlets her figure was slight her head massive her mouth large her jaw square her complexion pale her eyes gray-blue and her voice rich and musical she lost her mother at sixteen when she most needed maternal counsels and afterwards lived alone with her father until eighteen forty one when they removed to Folshill near coventry she was educated in the doctrines of the low or evangelical church which are those of calvin although her calvinism was early modified by the arminian views of wesley at twelve she taught a class in a sunday school at twenty she wrote poetry as most bright girls do the headmaster of the grammar school in coventry taught her greek and latin while signor breezy gave her lessons in italian french and german she also played on the piano with great skill her learning and accomplishments were so unusual and gave such indication of talent that she was received as a friend in the house of mr charles bray of coventry a wealthy ribbon merchant where she saw many eminent literary men of the progressive school among whom were james anthony frauda and ralph waldo emerson at what period the change in her religious views take place i have been unable to ascertain probably between the ages of twenty-one and twenty-five by which time she had become a remarkably well-educated woman of great conversational powers interesting because of her intelligence brightness and sensibility but not for her personal beauty in fact she was not merely homely she was even ugly though many admirers saw great beauty in her eyes and expression when her countenance was lighted up she was unobtrusive and modest and retired within herself at this period she translated from the german the life of jesus by strauss Fauerbach's essence of christianity and one of spinoza's works why should a young woman have selected such books to translate how far the writings of rationalistic and atheistic philosophers affected her own views we cannot tell but at this time her progressive and advanced opinions irritated and grieved her father so that as we are told he treated her with intolerant harshness with all her paganism however she retained the sense of duty and was devoted in her attentions to her father until he died in eighteen forty nine she then travelled on the continent with the brays seeing most of the countries of europe and studying their languages manners and institutions she resided longest in a boarding-house near geneva amid scenes renowned by the labours of gibbon voltaire and madame de stal in sight of the alps absorbed in the theories of saint simon and proudon a believer in the necessary progress of the race as a result of evolution rather than of revelation or revolution miss evans returned to england about the year eighteen fifty seven the year of the great exhibition and soon after became sub-editor of the westminster review at one time edited by john stuart mill but then in charge of john chapman the proprietor at whose house in the strand she boarded there she met a large circle of literary and scientific men of the ultra-liberal radical school those who looked upon themselves as the more advanced thinkers of the age whose aim was to destroy belief in supernaturalism and inspiration among whom were john stuart mill francis newman herbert spencer james anthony frauda g h lewis john a roebuck and harriet martineau dreary theorists 
mistrusted and disliked equally by the old Whigs and Tories, high churchmen and evangelical dissenters, clever thinkers and learned doubters, but arrogant, discontented, and defiant. It was then that the friendly attachment between Miss Evans and Mr. Lewis began, which ripened into love and ended in a scandal. Mr. Lewis was as homely as Wilkes, and was three years older than Miss Evans, a very bright, witty, versatile, learned, and accomplished man, a brilliant talker, novelist, playwright, biographer, actor, essayist, and historian, whose life of Goethe is still the acknowledged authority in Germany itself, as Carlyle's Frederick the Great is also regarded. But his fame has since been eclipsed by that of the woman he pretended to call his wife, and with whom— his legal wife being still alive, he lived in open defiance of the Seventh Commandment and the social customs of England for twenty years. This unfortunate connection, which saddened the whole subsequent life of Miss Evans, and tinged all her writings with the gall of her soul, excluded her from that high conventional society which it has been the aim of most ambitious women to enter. But this exclusion was not, perhaps, so great an annoyance to Miss Evans as it would have been to Hannah Moore, since she was not fitted to shine in general society, especially if frivolous, and preferred to talk with authors, artists, actors, and musical geniuses, rather than with prejudiced, pleasure-seeking, idle patricians who had such attractions for Addison, Pope, Mackintosh, and the other lights of literature, who unconsciously encouraged that idolatry of rank and wealth which is one of the most uninteresting traits of the English nation. Nor would those fashionable people, whom the world calls great, have seen much to attract them in a homely and unconventional woman whose views were discrepant with the established social and religious institutions of the land. A class that would not tolerate such a genius as Carlyle would not have admired Marian Evans, even if the stern etiquette of English life had not excluded her from envied and coveted reunions, and she herself, doubtless, preferred to them the brilliant society which assembled in Mr. Chapman's parlors to discuss those philosophical and political theories of which Comte was regarded as the high priest, and his positivism the essence of all progressive wisdom. How far the gloomy materialism and superficial rationalism of Lewis may have affected the opinions of Miss Evans we cannot tell. He was her teacher and constant companion, and she passed as his wife so it is probable that he strengthened in her mind that dreary pessimism which appeared in her later writings. Certain it is that she paid the penalty of violating a fundamental moral law, in the neglect of those women whose society she could have adorned, and possibly in the silent reproaches of conscience, which she portrayed so vividly in the characters of those heroines who struggled ineffectually in the conflict between duty and passion. True, she accepted the penalty without complaint, and labored to the end of her days, with masculine strength, to enforce a life of duty and self-renunciation on her readers, to live at least for the good of humanity. Nor did she court notoriety, like George's Sand, who was as indifferent to reproach as she was to shame. Miss Evans led a quiet, studious, unobtrusive life with the man she loved, sympathetic in her intercourse with congenial friends, and devoted to domestic duties and Mr. Lewis himself relieved her from many irksome details, that she might be free to prosecute her intense literary labors. In this lecture on George Eliot, I gladly would have omitted all allusion to a mistake which impairs our respect for this great woman. But defects cannot be unnoticed in an honest delineation of character, and no candid biographers, from those who described the lives of Abraham and David, to those who have portrayed the characters of Queen Elizabeth and Oliver Cromwell, have sought to conceal the moral defects of their subjects. 
Aside from the translations already mentioned, the first literary efforts of Miss Evans were her articles in the Westminster Review, a heavy quarterly, established to advocate philosophical radicalism. In this review appeared from her pen the article on Carlyle's Life of Sterling, Madame de la Sablière, Evangelical Teachings, Heine, Silly Novels by Lady Novelists, The Natural History of German Life, Worldliness and Unworldliness, all powerfully written, but with a vein of bitter sarcasm in reference to the teachers of those doctrines which she fancied she had outgrown. Her connection with the review closed in 1853, when she left Mr. Chapman's home and retired to a small house in Cambridge Terrace, Hyde Park, on a modest but independent income. In 1854 she revisited the continent with Mr. Lewis, spending her time chiefly in Germany. It was in 1857 that the first tales of Miss Evans were published in Blackwood's magazine, when she was thirty-eight, in the full maturity of her mind. The Sad Fortunes of Amos Barton was the first of the series called Scenes of Clerical Life, which appeared. Mr. Blackwood saw at once the great merit of the work, and although it was not calculated to arrest the attention of ordinary readers, he published it, confident of its ultimate success. He did not know whether it was written by a man or by a woman. He only knew that he received it from the hand of Mr. Lewis, an author already well known as learned and brilliant. It is fortunate for a person in the conventional world of letters, as of society, to be well introduced. This story, though gloomy in its tone, is fresh, unique, and interesting, and the style good, clear, vivid, strong. It opens with a beautiful description of an old-fashioned country church, with its high and square pews, in which the devout worshippers could not be seen by one another, nor even by the parson. This functionary went to church in top boots, and, after his short sermon of platitudes, dined with the squire, and spent the remaining days of the week in hunting or fishing, and his evening in playing cards, quietly drinking his ale, and smoking his pipe. But the hero of the story, Amos Barton, is a different sort of man from his worldly and easy rector. He is a churchman, and yet intensely evangelical and devoted to his humble duties, on a salary of eighty pounds, with a large family and a sick wife. He is narrow, but truly religious and disinterested. The scene of the story is laid in a retired country village in the Midland Counties, at a time when the evangelical movement was in full force in England, in the early part of last century, contemporaneous with the religious revivals of New England, when the bucolic villagers had little to talk about or interested them, before railways had changed the face of the country, or the people had been aroused to political discussions and reforms. The sorrows of the worthy clergyman centered in an indiscreet and in part unwilling hospitality which he gave to an artful, needy, pretentious, selfish woman, but beautiful and full of soft flatteries, which hospitality provoked scandal and caused the poor man to be driven away to another parish. The tragic element of this story, however, centers in Mrs. Barton, who is an angel, radiant with moral beauty, affectionate, devoted, and uncomplaining, who dies at last from overwork and privations, and the cares of a large family of children. There is no plot in this story, but its charm and power consist in a vivid description of common life, minute but not exaggerated, which enlists our sympathy with suffering and misfortune deeply excites our interest in commonplace people living out their weary and monotonous existence this was a new departure in fiction a novel without love scenes or happy marriages or thrilling adventures or impossible catastrophes but there is great pathos in this homely tale of sorrow with no attempts at philosophizing no digressions no wearisome chapters that one wishes to skip but all spontaneous natural free showing reserved power the precious buds of promise destined to bloom in subsequent works, 
till the world shall be filled with the aroma of its author's genius and there is also great humor in this clerical tale of which the following is a specimen hey dear said mrs patton falling back in her chair and lifting up her withered hands what would mr gilful say if he was worthy to know the changes as have come about in the church these ten years i don't understand these new sort of doctrines when mr barton comes to see me he talks about my sins and my need of mercy now mr hackett i've never been a sinner from the first beginning when i went into service i always did my duty to my employers i was as good a wife as in any country never aggravating my husband the cheese factor used to say that my cheeses was always to be depended upon to describe clerical life was doubtless the aim which miss evans had in view in this and the two other tales which soon followed in these as indeed in all her novels the clergy largely figure she seems to be profoundly acquainted with the theological views of the different sects as well as with the social habits of the different ministers so far as we can detect her preference it is for the broad church or the high and dry clergy of the church of england especially those who were half squires and half parsons in districts where conservative opinions prevailed for though she was a philosophical radical she was reverential in her turn of mind and clung to poetical and consecrated sentiments always laying more stress on woman's duties than on her rights End of section 20.